All right, so yeah, I, I, oh, I've got an espresso machine. It's really noisy. Um, what I'll do, are, you, are we going to just kick off? Is that it? Well, yeah, we might as well. Holy hell, wow, this is so well, fun. He normally says stuff to me. No, no, I, no, I am going to do, we are going to do that. I just, has it really been that long since you've done one of these? Right, yeah, no, let us know when you're ready. I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. I'm always no, you're ready. not, you're I'm still ready. faffing about. Wait, do, do you have the espresso? Is everything okay? Uh, the coffee, I can hear it. It's, oh, it's coming through now. I've got a nice, uh, what's it called, a crema appearing. However, I'm having two shots. Lee, we can go. Why don't somebody, <coughs> I can make coffee and do a podcast. Okay, I'm, yeah, using, then... I'm, I'm using coffee pods. <laughs> See, but, it kind of fits together. We probably are doing it secretly. I imagine Fran's going to capture all of this and use it in some way, shape or form. Lee Davis and Gwilym Roberts are the two IPs in a pod, and you are listening to a podcast on intellectual property, brought to you by the Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys. Well, hello then, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you? Yeah, really, really well. I was looking forward to opening the office on Monday, but um, probably not happening now because the world's still in lockdown-ish, isn't it? What do, the, what do the guys? What do the guys think about that? Oh, actually, well, we're, we're going to kind of like secretly open the office, so staff are still going to go in. It's not get... really secretly; you've just podcasted it. Oh, sh- oh, do you know what? I knew there was a, oh. something I didn't have. Wow, I wasn't meant to say. So you're not opening the office on Monday? So, no, we're definitely sorry. not opening the no, office. No, 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 no. Good, no good, we good, definitely good. don't want any members going in. Most importantly, we don't want members going in. Okay, got that. No, no, got no. Serious point actually, because the staff want to get used to working back in the office again. We're obviously limited numbers of staff in the office so we can maintain social distancing and stuff like that so i think for the time being it'll have to be staff only um which is a shame because one of the one of the great things about super is the fact that we get so many members coming in and out of the office during the day makes it a really Again. interesting have you, have place to work have, yeah have you been into town at all since uh since town where's, where's town I, I live on a hill outside of portsmouth where's <laughs> town for me in, if you'd be popped around Holborn in the in, in the recent not, past, not for sixteen months. No, it's quite. It is quite quiet now. It's is it? it is. It's a bit sad. Yeah, it's um. There's the, the few the pubs and cafes, but there's a lot of shops that you can't. You think what well, used to be there because it wasn't an empty window before, and you can't work out what it was, which is a bit sad. Oh, as bad as that. The places that are actually derelict now. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like a, it's like a, a post-zombie apocalypse. Honestly, it's, it's, there's there's potholes, there's bunkers, feral packs of dogs. Um, yeah, you're not you're not you're not selling going back to me at all. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, we podcast. We're doing a podcast today. That's that's why we're here. And uh, I, I was almost thinking about renaming this one. I was going to call it Two Peas or Not Two Peas. But, oh. um, but for reasons that will become obvious as we progress. No one yet knows how good a joke that was, Willem. Trust me, it'll never really come out. It, it, it was glorious, <laughs> and, and thank you, and thank you. So we've got with us today Luke McDonough. Luke, hello, introduce yourself, because it's much easier for you to get the introduction right than it is for me to bumble through what I've written. So you introduce yourself. Thanks, Lee, and thank you to, to Gwilym as well for, for this kind invitation. So I'm an academic at the London School of Economics. Uh, I, uh, I'm a scholar of intellectual property law. And I've just published a book called Performing Copyright, Law, Theatre and Authorship. And that's what I'm here to discuss today. Sounds absolutely fascinating. Theatre, somewhere most of us haven't been for a long time. So we, we might have to remind ourselves as we go along what the theatre is and how it works. But um, you're going to start quite a long way back, aren't you? 
Well, yeah, absolutely. But there's also the contemporary point that, because um, I'm going to start in the Elizabethan age, and that was also an age of plague. And oh, yeah, uh, cool. were shut down for, uh, from time to time for several months because of, of, of the plague. So one of the, the kind of uh, humbling aspects of the last 15, 16 months has been that when you look back in history, this was more like the norm than what we grew up with in the last, let's say, 30, 40 years um, of, you know, not having to deal with a pandemic um, kind of uh, impact. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk of about the 1918 Spanish flu uh, pandemic and all of that. But this is something that has happened uh, in, in history. Um, and as I said, I want to begin in that kind of murky uh, flea-infested uh, uh, London of uh, the 1550s because there's two important events that happen in the 1550s that are kind of central to where I begin my, my book. And the first one is in 1557 when the Stationers' Company gets its royal charter. And so, you know, the company had existed before, but it's suddenly the official... Um, it has the official monopoly on print in England, except for Oxford and Cambridge, which have their own privileges. But the Stationers Company, which is kind of a cartel of publishers, um, they control print. And then 1558, the next year, Elizabeth I um, ascends to the throne. And so we're in a, a new era for, for England. And it's an era in which lawyers become very, very important. Don't, don't tell Gwilym that. Don't, no, don't tell Gwilym <laughs> that. He, he'll hope it'll come back again. <laughs> well, they, they, they had fleas back then, though, so there we go. Yeah, it, it may still come back. Um, and in particular, the Inns of Court, uh, it, in a way, it's kind of the heyday of the Inns of Court in the Elizabethan period because it was seen as kind of the third university of England at the time. Uh, after Oxford and Cambridge. It was a real centre for learning. And you know, it wasn't just about kind of um, training for the bar. It was, you know, player uh, lawyers translated philosophical texts from Latin. They translated plays and they staged plays from Latin playwrights like Seneca and Plutarch. I mean, I don't know whether either of you two have ever been involved in the staging of a play. Uh, well, when I was at school, I did a few. Right. <laughs> I've I've trod the boards myself. I was um, I was second sailor in um oh I can't remember the play now. So what's the play where it has exit pursued by bear in it? Oh, I think that's one of the Henry Henry the maybe Henry the is that Henry the fourth Henry the sixth? Yeah, that's a classic line anyway. That yeah. I was I was second sailor in that during my right. time uh, yeah. as, as an actor. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so well, that's, that's a wonderful experience to have had. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. um, and that kind of, uh, if you can imagine that link between, because, you know, law in itself is, has a lot of theatrical elements to it, you know, the courtroom, the way barristers speak. So there's a type of rhetoric that's developed around this time, which is indebted to theatre. But at the same time, uh, in 1561, something very important happens, which is, the lawyers write the first uh, English tragedy, which is uh, called Gorbodok, at the Inns of Court, and it's performed. And that's a particularly important play because it takes the Senecan tragedy, the Roman tragedy, and it kind of brings it into the English context. And that's obviously something that William Shakespeare would have encountered 
Um, he's born in 1564, uh, same year as Christopher Marlowe. Ben Jonson is born in 1572. So, you know, the, the big figures of Elizabethan theatre are born and kind of emerge into this world where the Inns of Court has, has already played a crucial role in the development of English theatre. And, you know, by the 1590s, uh, Elizabethan theatre is really booming. And from my point of view, and from the point of view of kind of the, the copyright lawyer, what's interesting is that we have this cultural production that's really booming. And theatre is, is the primary uh, forum for art, really, at this point, because, you know, you don't have high literacy uh, amongst the population and you don't yet have anything like recording technology. So there's no cinema, there's no uh, radio, there's no podcasts, obviously. So theatre is really where it's at. That's where most people get their culture. And so it really is so important um, for kind of England as a kind of, uh, well, in terms of, of the way that it is thinking of itself, that is all expressed through, through theatre and through these great titans of English theatre who I've mentioned. And, and from the copyright lawyer's point of view, what's interesting is that there isn't really anything that we'd recognise as the modern law of copyright. Um, authors in particular, don't really have much power at this point. So you have the stationer's company, which, you know, they, they will be gathering um, texts, play texts, and they'll be printing them whenever they think that there is a, a profit to be had. And they'll be registering them. And a lot of what we know about when certain plays may have been performed is because they show up on the rolls of the stationer's company at some point. And so um, that's an important historical record that we have. But again, the authors themselves wouldn't have had much say in how those works got printed. They often got printed in an unattributed way. So sometimes the playwright wasn't even mentioned. And uh, Shakespeare wouldn't have had a great interest in getting published, would he? Because that wasn't his bag. He was he was an actor, wasn't he? He was an actor who wrote a bit, really. Exactly. He? So um, the, the, the job, you know, we think of Shakespeare now as almost this kind of archetypal English writer, um, when in actual fact, um, he would have viewed his own role as very multifaceted because, yes, he was an actor. And he was also a shareholder in the Lord Chamberlain's Met. And, and that was kind of a theatre company that would have almost like a joint stock company, have held control over their performances and would have shared the revenues from those performances amongst the members of, of, of the company. And what mattered to them was that they had a text to perform. And they would have you know, tried to keep a hold of these performance texts as best they could. And they had value because, um, you know, if that text escaped, maybe one of the rival theatres might think about putting it on or put on something similar to it. Um, and so, you know, they were certainly controlling these texts and there was a value in performance, but that was very separate from what was happening with print. So we have the stationers controlling print and the theatre companies themselves controlling the performance text. He couldn't have, have made a living just from writing at this point. He had to be involved in other ways. So you, there was control of the, the medium, as it were, through the, the stationers. And to a certain extent, the message by not sharing out printed copies. But you mentioned about how you want to stop uh, a competing company from stealing your, um, your, your play. Was there, <laughs> was there any means to doing that other than violence? 
Yeah, so, so it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. I, I, I've no doubt that there, there were certainly uh, threats of violence going on all the time in, in, in Elizabethan London. I mean, the, the answer is, I suppose, from a legal point of view, no, because you, you wouldn't have had, uh, well, we don't really have cases of, of theatres trying to, to stop each other. But also there wasn't a legal right that was recognised relating to performance at this point. And actually there wouldn't be until the 1830s. So uh, um, that idea that you have a right to perform any work that is out there is thought of as, as a norm at that point. So there was a certain amount of collaboration um, between the theatres. Um, they knew they were in competition with one another. Um, if one uh, theatre had a... So, so, for example, if the Lord Chamberlain's men uh, at the Globe had a successful run of a play about, uh, let's say, Henry VIII, maybe the Admiral's men at the Rose Theatre would do a similar play the next year. Um, you know, a lot of these copies would have been scribal copies as well. They would have been handwritten, that they wouldn't have even been printed necessarily. Um, so, you know, everything... And, and, and the other thing that's, that's worth mentioning at this point is that there's a lot of improvisation that's happening. These texts are always changing. It's, it, it isn't as if there's one definitive copy. And, and, and Lee made the, um, the point at the beginning, that this kind of pun about uh, two IPs or not two IPs, right? So, Oh, I get it now. Oh, yeah, exactly. Lee. So that, um, if we go back to that famous line of Shakespeare, there's actually several different versions of, of Hamlet. And there's a version of Hamlet that is lost, which is the early version. We don't have that. Um, all we know is that uh, a contemporary of Shakespeare called Thomas Nash called it English Seneca. So it's just kind of an English version of the Latin tragedy, the Roman tragedy. Um, but we have different versions of, of, of Hamlet published at different times. And on that line, you know, to be or not to be, in one um, text, it says to be or not to be, that is the question, which is the famous one that we would know. But another version of the text says to be or not to be, that is the point. So, you know, these texts were changing all the time. Actors were improvising. Um, there's a, a, a theatre scholar, scholar called Jeffrey Maston who describes this type of theatre authorship as polyvocal, that it's, it's kind of wrong for us to, to, with hindsight, look back and say, Shakespeare was the only individual contributing to these texts. And, you know, you've probably seen that there's a, that there's a whole area now of English scholarship where they're suddenly finding, oh, Christopher Marlowe might have contributed to this yeah. part. Yeah. And that's so, actually, so, so, so Shakespeare, if there had been any kind of robust copyright law in enforcement at the time, Shakespeare wouldn't have been the writer he was because, I'll be kind of, he borrowed a bit, didn't he? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, um, they all borrowed from one another and they borrowed from classical texts. Um, uh, I mean, the, the comedy of errors, the plot characters are taken hook, line and sinker from Plutarch. I mean, it's, even in modern copyright, that would have been seen, I guess, as, as so, so old, it would have been public domain. But of course, they borrowed from each other. They, they satirized each other. They referenced each other. They did, you know, you guys are big fans of puns. They did lots of puns against one another. So, you know, that sense that these are not singular texts that, that Shakespeare would have written word for word and then forced the actors to perform exactly as he wrote it. You know, Samuel Beckett did that, and he's a writer who would not allow improvisation at all and wanted his text to be performed exactly the way that he intended it to be. Harold Pinter was also a writer who was very much like that. But Shakespeare, because he was an actor and because he was so actively involved in the performances of his own plays, 
would have been in the performances in a very kind of live and active sense. And so uh, it's wonderful that we have these texts um, of Shakespeare. And there's no doubt that he had his own individual kind of uh, insightful poetical brilliance and, and, the, and the way that, that he, he brings out these human insights is incredible. But he's also working within a very vibrant collaborative atmosphere. And so, you know, the point is, is that, you know, it, it, it doesn't do him a disservice to acknowledge that in any way. It's just um, to acknowledge that's what it was like. Um, that's what the, the, the theatre companies were like. And that Shakespeare couldn't have, you know, he couldn't have made a living purely from writing plays and then selling them to a theatre company. It would have been very difficult uh, to do that, which is why he was involved in these other ways. Now, one of his contemporaries who did try to do that and did succeed at least partially was Ben Jonson. So Ben Jonson um, is 10 years, almost 10 years younger than Shakespeare, but um, comes to, to, to prominence around the same time. He actually satirizes the Inns of Courts in his play, uh, Every Man Out of His Humour, in the late 1500s. Um, so he's aware of the law as well. And more than Shakespeare, Johnson, um, kind of in collaboration with Philip Henslow, who was the, the owner of the Rose Theatre, was kind of the impresario of the time, he begins to exert more control over how his works appear in print. In, in, and we're kind of into the Jacobean era at this point. So kind of uh, early 1600s, uh, James I, uh, and uh, we're talking about an era when Shakespeare passes away, in the Jacobean era, Ben Jonson lives a bit longer and is able to kind of maybe take advantage of the fact that authorship is be beginning to be more respected, perhaps, in the theatrical realm. And as I said, he actually begins, when he, when he writes scripts, Ben Jonson, the Jacobean era, he begins to kind of insert the idea that the, the actors are telling his story. Whereas in the Elizabethan era, it was very common for theatre companies to refer to the playwright as our poet. We own him, in other words. Um, whereas Ben Jonson begins to assert himself. So some scholars actually trace the, kind of the, 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 the in England, the modern idea of a theatrical author to Ben Jonson because he was much more assertive. I mean, Shakespeare's plays um, in, in bulk only get published after his death in the first folio and in the subsequent um, folios. Whereas Ben Jonson is much more considerate about being, you know, he's, he wants his, 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 play, his plays to be published in his lifetime in the way that he would like them to be presented. So we're looking at a move towards, as you say, identification of, of authorship. And so far, I'm not hearing a lot of actual IP. And it's not, not criticism of this podcast, but more like criticism of the yeah. Elizabethan... Oh, it's, oh, it's a, gen it's a general criticism. Yeah. It's, it's an absolute oh. criticism of this podcast. We have every time. <laughs> Where's the IP? No, so, so at the moment still... It's so so, so um, you, you do have some IP in the print side. So you do have cases... Um, so so right. the Court of Assistants um, was the place where um, if there were disputes between publishers who, who were members of the station as they would take action against each other. For example, if one person had the monopoly to print a certain work and another publisher printed it, that could be resolved through that legal process. And there are cases involving the stationers uh, that, are, that go to the Court of Common Pleas and so on in the 16th century. 
Um, there are not many, at least that I could find, that involve theatre scripts, but other books were certainly objects of property that the stationer's company controlled. But as I said, that's very distant from the world of Shakespeare and Ben Johnson in many respects. And so, you know, that's your point is an insightful one because it is the absence of IP that is notable in the theatres. <laughs> They're using other normative ways to try to make sure that they have some kind of exclusive uh, ownership, but it's it's not really anything that we would see as an IP right. And and performance is is, is just very kind of anomalous and left to its own zone. The courts don't in, don't, don't involve themselves except in censorship. You know, everything is going through the the, the state's censor, the master of the revels has to authorize what is being performed. So the state isn't is interested that you know the queen is not being defamed on stage, but the set but, but otherwise the state doesn't really see property in this. Though people are paying to get in, you know, money is being made. So commerce is happening. But as you say, in the performance side, there's no IP right yet. We then come up to, of course, the English Civil War and the Interregnum, and the theaters are all closed. So we essentially have this golden age of English theatre, which is very vibrant, and then suddenly we have nothing for almost 20 years. And what happens when the monarchy is restored under Charles II in 1660 is that we have something that I, that I think your, uh, your audience will be interested in, which is what are known as the patent theatres. And these are essentially the theatres that have the royal patent to perform serious drama. And there's only two of those uh, in, in England, the Theatre Royal at Drury Lane and the Theatre Royal at Covent Garden. And those are later, you know, a, a, as the decades go on after the restoration, uh, there's more royal theatres. So the Haymarket becomes the third theatre operating in the summer. Um, there's theatre royals that open then uh, in the subsequent decades in Ireland, in uh, Liverpool, but the state is, is having much more control of the process, whereas the Elizabethan theatres are, they're kind of out of, apart from the censorship element, they're operating kind of by their own devices. Um, but the patent theatres really restrict the avenue by which writers can get their work performed, because you have to go to one of these, initially one of these two theatres to get your work performed. And so what that does in part is that pushes a lot of writers away from the theatre and into the print zone. And you have the rise of the novel and people like Samuel Richardson, who emerge as you know, the, the, the first great English novelists. And in part, that happens because the theatrical realm is closed off much more than it was in Shakespeare's time. Absolutely. And of course, you have rising literacy and you have more printed books. But go on, Philip, sorry. I was, no, I was actually going to say about the literacy point. And so... And, and we're talking about theatre today, so the, the books took their own path. But again, presumably at the beginning, it was more about because printing was so tough, you could maintain your monopoly partly simply through having control of the, the printing um, apparatus as well. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there's a different story to be told then. Funny enough, Samuel Richardson ends up having his own disputes over copyright, which are fascinating. But we'll put them to one side for, for this moment. So that brings us up really to the Statute of Anne, 1710. And finally, you know, for your audience, we're getting to something that's more akin to an IP right that we would recognize today as modern copyright. And what's notable about the Statute of Anne is that authors are named in, in the statute. 
They're not the principal beneficiaries. I mean, a lot of the people who studied the ERSA, the booksellers, the stationers, they still really ran the show for, for decades after the statute ban. But the authors are mentioned in the statute for the first time, and also the renewal of copyright, because it's 14 years and then it can be renewed for another four, another 14, but that's tied to the author's life. So, it's, so the author's meant to be still alive when the copyright is renewed. And so authors are, are beginning to be um, important to this story of the law. And, and for the first time, the stationers don't have it all their own. And you know, through the 18th century then, we do get cases of authors uh, going to court to claim a right where, for example, their play was printed without permission. That begins to happen. But performance is still not protected. And we have another great theatre barrister personality uh, to thank for, for one of the great cases of the 18th century, which is Coleman and Wathen. It's a case from the late 19th century. George Coleman, who, who had received training as a barrister and then went on to manage the, the Theatre Royal in Haymarket, he essentially tried to prevent a performance of a play that he had initially staged. The playwright, wanted, essentially it was then being performed by another theatre, and he took action in a case called Coleman and Wathen to try to prevent that. And the courts just say, sorry, the statute of Anne protects books in print. That can include plays, but it only protects print. Once the work is out there, once the work has been printed, anybody can perform it. Performance is not publication. And so at that point, the late 18th century, early 19th century, much akin to the time of Shakespeare, performance is not protected as a right. And you can perform any published work that is, is out there. And what that pushes people in theatre to do is to not publish their plays. And you know, one of the great successful plays of, of the late 18th century is The School for Scandal by, by Richard Brinsley Sheridan. And that play doesn't, it's initially performed in the 1770s. It doesn't get printed till the eight, till, till about 1800. Because um, again, it was this old method of, if you don't want some, someone to be able to perform your play, you keep a very tight hold on the script. If no one else can get the script, they can't perform it. So yeah, they, they they make you put these days. They make you put your iPhone in a metal lined bag when you go to a gig. Right. Presumably, you kind of confiscated your quill on the way in. <laughs> we laugh, but actually, there was a practice where um, <laughs> theatre managers used to send around people, scribes, and so on, to uh, try to take down plays that were being performed from memory. I love so, I love the way it just repeats itself. It's yeah. awesome, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's one of these things where when you're talking about intangibles, right, and we're still talking about intangibles today, whether it be through the internet or whether it be through the physical world, the kind of the natural course of things is that these things escape and they're hard to keep a, a, a hold on to. And so, but if you, as you said, if you confiscate the phone and you, and you don't want uh, your fans to, take, to record your jokes if you're a stand-up comedian, similar methods were, were tried uh, in those days, uh, no doubt about it. But obviously, a bit like today, we can see how ridiculous that is today, and we can, and it was noticeable how ridiculous that was at the time. So by 1833-1842, Parliament decides we need to legislate to have a performing right. And so we have an act in 1833 and an act in 1842. And these rights, sorry, these acts between the two of them essentially establish the performing right of what is defined as a dramatic piece. 
And that can be more or less anything that you put on stage, really. But what's interesting is that that's a separate act from the, the contemporary copyright act. So print and performance now have separate legal identities within the, within legislation. And what happens, interestingly enough, is that some of the joint authorship cases in the late 19th century end up being taken under this performing, these two acts, the 1833 Act and the 1842 Act, the, the Dramatic Copyright Acts, under this definition of dramatic piece. And we have a great case in 1870, which is called Levi and Rutley which is a theatre manager essentially suing the playwright to try to claim joint authorship of the play. And what had happened here was that, because it was common in that time, you know, you didn't have theatre directors, by the way, as separate roles at this point in theatre history. So the manager has a really significant role within the, the, the theatre company. And they often did, you know, make edits to texts and they often did, do something akin to the job of a director today. But essentially what happened here is the theatre manager had, manager had added a scene to this play while it was being performed at his theatre. The playwright then essentially wanted to take the text elsewhere, have it perform, get paid again, of course. And the theatre manager did not like this, wanted, again, the exclusive right to that play, and so made this you know, somewhat spurious claim for joint authorship, but not entirely spurious because the theatre manager had added something to the play. There was this scene. And so here, the court rejected the theatre manager's claim. And th th they do so for a very important reason that still plays a role in our, in our court cases today. Essentially, the court said there was no common design between the playwright and the theatre director to write this play together. It was not intended to be a collaboration. And therefore, I, I will not allow the authorship to be considered to be a joint and that that point is still that that is a super important point in the United States. That point of of, uh, of common design and the merger doctrine and all that really comes from from this case. And we we have another fascinating case in 1897, which shows a little bit of the the strangeness of the fact that print and performance are still protected se separately. So Bram Stoker publishes Dracula. He has his rights as an author to get that printed, but He's worried, as other, you know, Charles Dickens was also worried about this as well. He's worried, what happens if someone stages my novel? Can I stop them? And in order for something to be considered to be a dramatic piece, it had to actually be performed. So what Bram Stoker did was he got the Victorian actor Henry Irving to perform Dracula on stage for a paid audience of just two people in order to claim the performing copyright. There are so many resonances on there, even now with all these little tricks that people were doing. I, I There's a cinema near me that does showings of films that no one's ever going to watch so that they can be entered into film competitions in the UK. You can go, but they, they're really surprised if you turn up. And I was just going to go back to the other one, actually, which is about the, the that non no common design um, in, in the authorship. And again, the kind of the parallels with the sampling debate in music at the moment as well. So it's, it's amazing how we keep thinking we're, in, we, you know, we're coming up with new stuff in IP. And a lot of the time, it's just look back, it got done somewhere at some point. Didn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and when you have the common law tradition, you can go back very far and see resonances with, with today and, and cases that are still somewhat, well, are cited. I mean, you know, Walter and Lane is, is, a, is a case from 
the early 20th century before the 1911 Act, but it still gets cited today on originality, even though at the time it was decided originality wasn't a requirement of copyright. Um, so, you know, there's also, and in this case, as I say, Levi and Rutley or Levy and Rutley, however you, you want to pronounce it, that still gets cited in, in modern, uh, modern cases, uh, particularly in the United States. So when I started work on, on the book, I was interested by how I was I was wondering would it be difficult to connect the historical with the contemporary and as you've noted Gwilym it's not difficult actually to do that at all because there are so many points at which you think wow I mean if, if this came up today or if this happened today we, we would have something to say about it as modern IP lawyers so that's the, the story up to 1911 so well, before before we move yeah. away from Dracula just because I'm a I'm a big Bram Stoker fan there are other reads across aren't there because Nosferatu the 22 silent film that was steeped in potential copyright infringement and, and I, I, I think if i remember right the opening shots sort of suggest it's an adaptation but it could be no more than that because otherwise there was all potential i think i'm right i might be wrong yeah well, well as far as i know that the reason why it's called nosferatu was to try to escape having to pay for the rights or, or, or to deal with that problem as as you say so yeah that's a great example as well for kind of pointing us towards the 20th century and also the rise of cinema and then later television. Because one of the interesting things about theatre that I hadn't quite understood when I started the project is that, because today there's so few cases that come to court involving like a a, a play, a theatre play. There's so many if you go back before essentially the rise of cinema. And essentially what happens is cinema and later television and radio kind of take over the public role of, of theatre to a great extent, but not entirely. Theatre is still important, but it's no longer of, you know, in, in the Victorian era, theatre was still the most valuable kind of public forum. Like there was a lot, it was lucrative. Um, and obviously theatre today is, is lucrative as well, but it's lucrative within a kind of wider entertainment sector, which is full of different lucrative areas, whether it be cinema or video games or all sorts of things. Whereas, you know, theatre was uh, one of very few games in town or entertainment ventures in town at that point. So there's lots of case law because there's lots of of kind of uh, incentives to take a case if you think there's a big pot of money at the end of the rainbow. Whereas today, there's so few works of theatre that make a profit that taking a high court action would in most cases make no sense because the costs that you would end up paying would, would you know, eat into any potential award you, you, you could get. But the 1911 Act is, is very important. Uh, it follows the Berne Convention, of course, which Charles Dickens and Victor Hugo had advocated for, uh, because up to that point, they were seeing you know, pirate editions of their books in the US in particular. The, the Picklewick papers was one, wasn't it? And yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, uh, Dickens satirized the law and, and courts in all sorts of ways in, uh, in his novels. Um, so when we come to 1911, finally, for the first time in English law, we have a single copyright work, which is called a work. If you go back before 1911, often courts refer to books or they refer to texts or dramatic pieces. After 1911, they have to refer to the copyright work because that is the, the legal term that is used. And there's a recognition that the copyright work is a bundle of rights that authors own as first owner, including the right to publish and including the right to perform and adapt and so on. So it brings all of that saga into one bundle and simplifies things greatly. 
And as I say, it happens to coincide with the fact that cinema and TV begin to take over, theatre becomes less lucrative or one lucrative venture within many others. So we, we actually get less case law in the 20th century than, than you would imagine. The last major one involving a play that went to the High Court was in 2004, it was the case of Brighton and Jones. I don't know whether either of you have ever seen the play Stones in His Pockets. So it's, it's a play written by Marie Jones, for it was written first for performance in Belfast in 1996, and it was performed by the Double Joint Theatre in Belfast in 1996 under the direction of Pamela Brighton, who was the, the claimant in the case. Marie Jones was the, was the defendant. And so uh, it's, it's a play, The Stones in His Pockets, it's a, it's a comic play about kind of the Hollywood idea of Ireland. And it's about... Uh, you know, two Irish lads who kind of stumble upon a, a Hollywood film that's being made in, in their locality. And there's all sorts of kind of comedy about the, the real Ireland versus the stage Hollywood version and so on. Um, it was quite successful in its, in its initial run in Belfast. It was critically acclaimed. But like most plays, um, I think everybody involved probably thought, well, that's the end of that. We've had a great run. Uh, the summer's over and, you know, we'll, I'll see you in a couple of years and maybe we'll do something new. Um, but unusually, this play got revived by Marie Jones. She, she co sorry, she rewrote it around 1998, 1999, and it got performed again. And this time uh, it got picked up for the West End and it went to Broadway and it became an incredibly lucrative copyright work as a dramatic work under copyright. Um, the royalties it was generating were significant. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds. It still gets revived today. Um, every so often you, you will see a production that comes up in the West End or other places. So you know it's still out there as a work that is performed. And the director, Pamela Brighton, obviously got a bit annoyed when this happened because she felt she had contributed to this uh, dramatic work. And she came to the High Court in 2004 and essentially made two claims. The first one was that during the workshops, and this is a crucial part of, of, of kind of contemporary theatre, that a lot of plays are workshopped. So everyone goes into the room and they, they kind of challenge the text and they improvise. And the play will be rewritten, often considerably, during this process. And Brighton's argument was that she had made a lot of additions uh, and suggestions and had changed characters, changed lines of dialogue during the workshop. And as a result, she should be seen as a joint author of the copyright work, the dramatic work. And she made a second claim, which was that in the lead up to the 1996 performance, they had a deadline for when they needed to start these workshops. And, you know, not long before that deadline, Marie Jones still hadn't sent her at the script. And, she, and apparently Jones had a little bit of writer's block and was struggling to kind of get going on it. So Brighton actually typed out a, a very short opening scenario. And, you know, and this, this dates it, it faxed that over to Marie uh, Jones. And Jones actually used that initial opening scenario in the first scene of, of the play. So she made one claim based on the workshops, one claim based on an actual piece of writing. And the court, you know, really zeroed in on the writing aspect here. 
And they said Jones was the writer. And whatever was happening in the rehearsal room and with the workshop, whoever was suggesting what, it was still Jones who was doing the writing and who was you know, making these final decisions and so on. Obviously, that was contested, but none of that was recorded. Um, and so it was really kind of a she said, she said situation in the courtroom. And the, and the judge basically said, in the absence of clear evidence, I'm going to uh, uh, kind of resort to the status quo, which is that Jones owns the copyright. But the court did accept that the initial piece of writing that Brighton faxed over was a work in itself because it was a piece of writing. It was kind of a very short but opening script. And that Jones' uh, final play had derived to some extent and, and, and had adapted that scene. And so on that aspect, Jones did have a claim. But it wasn't as a co-author as such. It was simply that she had been the initial author of that, that opening scenario. So Jones won kind of 78%, I suppose, of, of the crucial issues. And Brighton won only 20%. And, it, and the crucial part was that the judge really felt that what Brighton had added in the workshops was simply what a director would normally do. And it wasn't authorial. And it wasn't part of this idea of the common design, which, again, goes way back to this classic idea. So you do get some um, workshops that are entirely improv, don't you? They're, you know, apart from maybe a theme, an idea, which could even come from the audience in some cases, the whole work is improvised there and then. Where, where, where does that kind of work stand? So, yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Lee, and, and that brings us right up to the, the contemporary way that plays get authored today. Because in some ways, a lot of things have changed since Shakespeare's time. And in other ways, a lot of collaboration still goes on. And so you have actually a debate within theatre and within theatre studies about whether and how much of a difference there is between text-based theatre and devised theatre. So as you say, devised theatre, the classic idea of it could be something like you all go into the room and there could be a few actors, there could be a director or the, and there could be a writer there too, or maybe nobody has, has defined their roles yet. It could be very open. It could just be four people going into a room and saying, let's do something. And they may just start off with an idea and the idea might be revenge or the idea might be love triangle. And they'll act out scenarios, they'll improvise, and something will begin to germinate in that process. And what's interesting is that at some point in devised theatre, there is usually a person, usually just one person, though it could be two, who begins to take control of what's happening and it begins to put a bit of a kind of a form or a structure on 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 the kind of uh, improvisory fun and playing that's happening um, because ultimately you need to get somewhere where what you end up performing will be repeatable to some extent so it can't I mean there may be some theater today that is very close to kind of chaos but it's usually some kind of organized chaos and so um, at that extreme end of devised theatre, you are very far away from a kind of singular author in that form, because everybody has given themselves to the process. And so what you end up with as a script, there may be one person who's contributed much more than others, but it might be that someone else has contributed roughly 10% or 20% or so on. Uh, you could proportion the, the, the kind of the collaborators there, if you choose. And some creative partnerships do that in some ways. 
Uh, I mean, back in 2014, there was a play staged at the National Theatre called Blurred Lines, and that was a genuine collaboration and with a common design between the director and the playwright. They share the copyright. They also credit others who contributed poetry and, and, uh, and other elements to it. So that's really a, a collaboration that was high profile at you know, the, the big UK theatre where it wasn't simply one person who got all the credit. But there is the other form of theatre. I mean, I mentioned Samuel Beckett, Harold Pinter, Martin McDonough as uh, another playwright who, uh, from what I've read about these playwrights, they submit a script to a theatre company or to a group of, of, of players and they expect it to be performed. There'll be very little additions. You know, every comma is more or less in place. So that's the other extreme where you do have singular authors. And then in between, you have a really messy situation because that's probably where most theatre is. So where you have something like Brighton and Jones, where when they went into the workshop room, they did have a script, but that script changed. It was revised. So it's not fully devised theatre, but it is a revised form of collaboration that they're working with. And so if you think about it um, from a kind of strict authorial point of view, there's probably multiple authors in that, in that way. And here there is a, a, a parallel with music. Undoubtedly, I mean, Lee and Gwilym, I'm sure you'll remember the Whiter Shade of Pale case that went all yeah. the way to the House of Lords back in, the, in yeah. the late 2000s. That was a similar legal principle. It was so everybody's in the, in, in the room, they're recording this song. The song already exists in its kind of embryonic form, written by Gary Brooker. And then in the recording process, Matthew Fisher improvises the Bach style intro and lovely chordal arrangement and that's the hook of the song you know to be honest no one knows the lyrics to this song <laughs> um, but everybody knows that organ intro and so you know okay he waits 40 years to assert his claim but when it finally comes to court um the the the, the judge you know it goes to high court court of appeal house of lords and ultimately the courts say you did contribute something significant here and you may not uh, have had the intention when you started out to be a co-author, and certainly Gary Brooker never intended you to be a co-author, but you all intended to create this piece of music, which would be the hit version. And that's enough of a common design, effectively, in something like Fisher and Brooker. And we've had other cases. I mean, Pink Floyd got sued by the singer from The Great Gig in the Sky, who does the wordless vocal, Claire Torrey, settled out of court. But she's now on the PRS website as a, as a co-author. Um, Bob Geldof got sued a few, couple of years ago by um, Johnny Fingers, the keyboardist from the Boomtown Rats, uh, settled out of court. But he's now down on the PRS website as a, as a co-author. So get some of those royalties from, from the song. I don't like Mondays. So there is a recognition in music cases that joint authorship can be attributed to somebody who might not be classic, classically thought of as the composer or the, or the writer of the song, but it simply added something important, something like a hook to a song. And so that analogy seemed to be rejected in Brighton and Jones, in that the, the core in Brighton and Jones was very much of the opinion that whatever you're improvising, whatever you're adding, it could be the actor, it could be the, the, the director in the rehearsal room, that's simply not enough. It, it's what the writer does that, that matters. But that, of course, 
is now somewhat in doubt because of the case of Kogan and Martin. So we have this fantastic case involving a film script. So it's not about a play, but it is about a dramatic work. And a play script and a film script under UK law are essentially the same copyright work. It's a script. And so what you have in Kogan and Martin is a dispute over the script for the film Florence Foster Jenkins, which was kind of a moderately successful film from about five years ago. And it was Meryl Streep was, was in it. Hugh Grant was in it. And Nicholas Martin was credited as, as the author of that. And so his former partner, Julia Kogan, took action against him, saying that she had contributed to this work. And they had been in a relationship when the script started. And by the time it got to the final version, they were no longer in a relationship. So it was a complex, messy dispute. But in the end, Julia Kogan was able to establish that even though she wasn't the person principally doing the writing, she wasn't the one on the laptop all the time editing the script, she'd contributed a significant scene, character development and so on that entitled her to a 20% share of that. And that brings me to the final thing I'm, that I'm going to say, which I talk about quite a lot in the book, which is the dispute over the play Tree from 2019, which didn't come to court, but maybe could have, and maybe that the agreed parties would have won on the basis of Kogan and Martin. So that case was Sarah Henley and Tori Allen Martin. They took, well, they didn't take action, but they uh, complained and criticised uh, Idris Elba and Kwame Kwe Arma in the media and in the theatre community for essentially cutting them out of the play tree. Even though they'd been involved in the early stages, they'd done early script work, they'd done early character development. If you read, the, you know, they blogged about it, they, they were interviewed by the BBC about it. If you read and listen to what they say, you know, we're only getting one side of the story from, from their view, but it's a plausible claim, what they say, that they had done enough work that they could have been entitled to a share of the, of, of the joint authorship of, of that work. In the end, they didn't take the legal case. They just made their complaint in public. And you know, they, they kind of felt that was enough for them at that point. And I think they probably thought the costs and, and the, the uncertainty of going to trial put them off. Um, but I make the argument that they could have taken that to court and they would have had a strong claim, particularly after Kogan and Martin, which in 2019, we have the Court of Appeal ruling. Early January this year, we had the IPEC making the, the, that for the, kind of the, the redone version of the first instance decision. So the courts are now, as a result of Kogan and Martin, like with music cases 15 years ago after Fisher and Brooker, more open to these claims. So it wouldn't surprise me if we have more claims in the future and if this begins to change this kind of author-centric model of authorship and credit in theatre to one that kind of acknowledges that there's a lot of collaboration that goes on and that it isn't a singular process, except in kind of the extreme Samuel Beckett, Harold Grinter process. So that's really all I wanted to say about the book. Um, I know we don't have that much time. You've done, you've done about 450 years of performing copyright in about 50 minutes, Luke. It's brilliant. Can I just, <laughs> the arc is beautiful as well. I mean, if this were a play, because we started with kind of a, a, a hazy concept of authorship um, and collaborative. And then we've been through the whole authors, everything and been very keen. And we've come back almost where we started. Yeah, it's amazing. More, to be, I mean, one thing I would say, Luke, is I mean, I get this with Lee all the time. I mean, I sit here, I create. He just chucks in a word here and there and suddenly we're two IPs in the pod. So it's, it's I've been, uh, I, I feel the pain of some of these Poor, poor protagonist. It's, it's hell. It's hell. Oh, dear. 
You are the Marlowe to my Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, I hope that he doesn't end up getting stabbed to death in Deptford. <laughs> like I, I, well, you never know with Lee. You never know with Lee. Luke, um, thank, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, yeah. So, so I'll, I'll just say before we wrap up that um, so, so the book is just out this week. It's It's brand new. I've started uh, a, a series of posts on Substack, kind of outlining some of some of the themes. So, so those are free to read uh, if anybody would like to. The first chapter is also accessible uh, for free on the Heart Bloomsbury website, where the book is. So you know, th- th- there's a lot out there if you're interested to read up on. Uh, if you really like it, please do buy the book as well, of course. But, you know, there's a lot that in the book that I haven't discussed, even though we've covered... I was going to say, ho- hopefully hopefully, this is just a teaser. It is. It is. I mean, uh, because when you get to something like moral rights in theatre, it's even more crazy where, you know, Samuel Beckett's estate is suing theatres for putting women in waiting for Godot. You have all sorts of other fascinating cases um, it really is uh, an amazing space theatre. And I'm, I'm a massive theatre fan. That's one of the motivations for why I got involved in, in this project. But, it, you know, it, it, it's such a shock, I think, when people from the theatre world come to the legal world. And, and a, another thing that, that's in the book that I didn't get a, a chance to mention is that I actually interviewed people in theatre about how they think about copyright. So, again, all of that is in the book if, if you want to read more. But it's such a, it's such a different way of thinking about the world because lawyers immediately demand evidence and form and kind of rational things and you know theater comes from from a space where all of those things are in flux and so when you ask people well you make this claim you know where is the evidence from 1996 that you added this line and of course the person said i was living in the moment you know i don't have that evidence because i was i was giving over myself to the process so yeah there, there you go Gwilym. you've just been living in my moment mate Luke, thank you so much, and yeah. um, I'm, I'm sure we're going to have you on again in the future because I, I, I know you research and write across the whole spectrum of um, of IP. Good luck with the book. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks, guys.